I know some of you are interested in uh, sermon preparation process, and I once in a while want to give you a little uh, insight into that process, but on Saturdays, I give my uh, lovely wife, have you ever noticed on Jeopardy when they interview the contestants, they say, who's with you? Oh, my lovely wife and my intelligent children, and you know, well, my lovely wife, Donna. Uh, on Saturdays, I give her my notes, and I have her review them, and I have her strike out all the boring parts. <laughs> so in conclusion, <laughs> just kidding. But she is uh, actually, uh, when I was a senior at seminary, I took what was called Preaching Six from Dr. Donald Sanuki, and it was a small class that met at his house, and our wives came. And uh, we would go through the preaching process as he taught our wives how to be good uh, crit critiquers of a message. And Don knows now not to critique my message at noon on Sunday. <laughs> she waits a little longer in her wisdom, which is very good. So, uh, but anyway, uh, today uh, we're starting a new series, and my question for you is, is how is your weight training going? How's your weight training going? My doctor tells me not only do I have to do cardiovascular exercise, but I should do weight training. He's meaning, of course, resistance training. And I always tell him, it's just too heavy. It's just too heavy. I can't do that. Uh, but uh, I don't mean that kind of weight training. How is your W-A-I-T training going? Weight training. Uh, we are starting the book of James. We're going to do a short series through the book of James, uh, a much neglected book in my mind anyway, in the New Testament. And ten times in this book, uh, James uses the words uh, weight or uh, uh, persevere or have patience. And it's one of the themes that are woven through this book because uh, we will see in a moment as they introduce this book to you that it's very important that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ learn how to wait. How is your weight training? Uh, we lived in Dallas, Fort Worth area. It's also known as the Metro Mess for five years. And uh, my commute, we lived in, out in Garland, which is east of Dallas. The, this is in the land of the tall power poles out in Garland. And my commute into Dallas Seminary was usually, to be anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. You know, if you've lived in the city, you don't measure distance by miles, you measure by time, by minutes. And it could be 15, 20 minutes into the seminary, but there were days on uh, I-35 I there that it was uh, 40 minutes to an hour. And I realized that God was had me in some weight training, in other words, developing my patience. And so that would be in the morning going to class. But then I worked up in Richardson, which is in North Dallas, and you'd go up I-75, which was at that time the main north-south corridor, and it's uh, called the North Central Expressway. But what it really was, it was the skinniest, longest parking lot in the world. That's <laughs> what that really was. And so it would some days take me an hour to get to my job. Uh, and I was in weight training, teaching me patience about all of that. Well, I wondered about that, and believe it or not, there are those who study the issue of patience and waiting. There are experts, they have PhD degrees, who study waiting. And one of the studies they did was down at Houston International Airport, 
And the management of that airport was receiving just tons of complaints about the baggage system and that people had to wait such a long time to get their bags. And so the management put in a process, they hired more baggage handlers, they, they increased the efficiency of the whole system, and uh, they got it down to under eight minutes from the time the bag left the aircraft to when it was on the carousel for the passenger to pick up, but they still received tons of complaints. They brought in one of these experts, uh, what's his name here? Uh, Richard Larson, he's from MIT actually, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he did some measurements and observations, and he said, well, the problem is, is your gates, the disembarking gates at the airport are only a minute's walk to the carousel. And so what they did is they moved the gates farther away, so it took longer to walk to the carousel, and by the time they got there, their bags were on the carousel. And the complaints disappeared. <laughs> It's amazing, you know, there's a whole psychology of patience and waiting. In fact, in that article that Richard Larson wrote about this, he said about, he's, by the way, he's called the world's leading expert on waiting in lines. So I don't know how your patience quotient is. Some of us tend to be very impatient, especially in the day of social media where we have instant communication around the world if we so desire. But according to Larson, when he did this study down at Houston, he said the length of our wait is not as important as what we're doing while we wait. Did you get that? The length of the wait is not as important as what we're doing while we wait. Quoting Larson, he says, often the psychology of queuing in a line is more important than the statistics of the wait itself. Essentially, we will tolerate occupied time, for example, walking to the baggage claim. That seems like we're doing something, doesn't it? Not just standing around staring at the carousel, going around and around. Give us something to do while we wait, and the wait becomes endurable. Joseph Stoll talks about that. He used to be a president of Moody Bible Institute. Now I think he's up in Michigan. but. He talked about that whole issue of wait. He claims that the most dreaded world word that a child hears is not no, it's wait. And some of us adult children don't like the wait either, do we? And yet the apostle or James, he uh, uses that term some 10 times in this letter. And I think of uh, this introduction to this letter, and I think of the fact that oftentimes when we have to wait, waiting on God, waiting on adversity to disappear, waiting on the next thing in life, waiting on other people, waiting to see what God is going to do. It seems like unoccupied time to us, doesn't it? It seems like such a waste sometimes because we are a people who like to do things and get accomplishments done. We wait, but as well as really happening behind the scenes, what is really happening as you are forced to wait? Is God actually doing anything? That's a good exercise when you're waiting next time. What's God doing behind the scenes in your life or those around you? Waiting on God implies developing a new perspective of what God is doing while we wait on Him. Uh, so today my purpose is simply to introduce this little letter, this epistle of James to you. And I was thinking about when I meet somebody new, when I'm introduced to someone, I like to find out a little bit about them. 
I don't know everything about them, but I want to find out some of the basics as I meet new people. And uh, I've found that people who are introduced to me, they ask sometimes some good questions about who I am and what's going on. And that's basically our purpose today. And I pray that you will not be bored, but this is important that you engage. So in the next several weeks, as we study through the book of James, that you will have an understanding of the historical context, the purpose of James, why it's in the Bible, and all of the things we will cover today. Well, one of the things is basically patient in patient endurance. And James knew that very well. In fact, uh, the Apostle James knew something about waiting, not just waiting for something desired, but waiting on the Lord and trusting Him during times of intense adversity. And so today we're going to start that. And although James uh, tends to be a very confusing book in some respects, uh, I like the title James, Serving Faith, or uh, <clears throat> Unrelenting Activism. It's really a book about ethics, in other words, how to live out the Christian life. You know, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul talks about saving faith. James talks about serving faith. If we believe in the saving faith, that our position in Christ, then what difference does that make ethically in how we live in our lives? And I would encourage you again today to read through the book of James. I read it through it again this morning. It takes me about nine minutes. And so uh, you can read through it a couple times a day, actually, if you'd like. And it's very good as it keeps opening up as we continue to read through the book of James. We're going to ask uh, five questions go through the book of James, and the first one is, is who wrote the book of James? Who wrote the book of James? You may think that that is a, not such a difficult question, but look at verse 1 of chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. As was the, the, the tradition of early writers in the first century and, and uh, later, uh, they would uh, sign the letter up front, basically. We sign a letter at the bottom they would introduce themselves first so the people, the readers, would know what was going on. And so who wrote the book of James? This introductory greeting informs us that James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really bond servant, and it's one of a privileged position when you look at terminology, which we will here in the future. Uh, James is our earliest book, earliest book in the New Testament. And on your back of your sermon insert, I have a chart. It's a timeline chart of the dating of the New Testament books. Now, our New Testament is not arranged chronologically. It's arranged more thematically. It's actually arranged according to an ancient Bible translation called the Latin Vulgate. Uh, that's how our Bible is arranged. The books are arranged. But on the chart, you'll see that James was very, very early, just after uh, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. We have the dates on the first line in the events, and then the events in Acts, the chapters that are covered, uh, because Acts is the history book of the beginning of the church, and then the books in their different dating uh, that you have there. So you can see what was the earliest book, uh, James, and the last book would be Revelation, of course. But James is a very early book. It was written before the Apostle Paul wrote his books uh, to the Gentiles. In fact, the next nearest, closest book was written was Galatians at about 49, A.D. 49. James was written somewhere between 30, probably as early as, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, 36, something like that. Most scholars say between 40 and 44, A.D. 40 and 44. 
But nothing in the epistle goes beyond Acts chapters 1 through 9. And whoever uh, would have written it, uh, it was... Uh, nothing goes beyond Acts 1 through 9. And nothing goes uh, beyond that. I think I'm missing something here. It's gone through my notes away. <laughs> now we're getting where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. When we look at uh, authorship of Bible, uh, Bible books, uh, there's internal evidence for the evidence inside the Bible, and then there's external evidence and other writings of that era. And the internal evidence, we know if you look up the name James in the New Testament, you're going to come up with four or five different Jameses that are listed. And so through a process of elimination, we can narrow it down to who wrote the book of James. The first one would be James, the son of Zebedee. You may know him as the brother of John, the two apostles, James and John, also called the sons of thunder. Uh, James, uh, the son of Zebedee, uh, was one of the apostles. His name appears in Acts 12, and uh, it tells us there that uh, Luke informs us in, in Acts uh, chapter 12, verse 2, that King Herod Agrippa had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword, and that happened in 44 AD at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so this James uh, was uh, well known, and he was a martyr for the faith. And uh, he would, if he had uh, written the epistle of James, we would have expected more internal and external information that he was the writer because he was a very well-known person in the early church. And instead of just referring to himself as a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, he probably would have called himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the early church writers would have referenced it to James, the son of Zebedee. The second James is James, the son of Alphaeus. James, the son of Alphaeus. We only know this apostle from the lists of the apostles in the Gospels and Acts. The New Testament is silent on his life and his labors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was basically pretty well unknown. And if he would have been the writer of the book of James, the early church would have kept his memory alive in a greater way and uh, that had been written by this apostle. Uh, the third one is James the Younger or James the Less. Uh, uh, some writers have called him that. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, he and his brother Joseph and sister Salome are the children of Mary, Mary who was married to Clopas. It gets confusing because there's lots of Marys and she was one of them at the tomb but her son was James the Younger identified as that. We know nothing about his life, and uh, again, if the early church would have known it was him, they would have elevated his, the knowledge of him, which they had not. And then there's James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, another James, another Judas. Uh, nothing is known about that particular person except that he was the father of this apostle Judas, who was not Iscariot. There was Judas Iscariot. This is a different Judas, and uh, nothing is known about him either. So that leaves us with the fifth James, and that's James, the half-brother of, of Jesus Christ, uh, the brother of Jesus Christ, the younger brother. The Gospel writers mention him as one of the sons of Mary, the mother of Jesus. You can look that up in Matthew 13, Mark chapter 6. And during Jesus' earthly ministry, he and his brothers did not believe in Jesus, John chapter 7, verse 5. James became a believer after the risen Lord, Jesus, appeared to him at the resurrection, after the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. 
After Jesus' ascension, he was present with his brothers and the apostles in the upper room in Acts 1.14, and he assumed that he was given the leadership of the Jerusalem church after Peter's release from, from uh, prison in Acts 12. And he spoke with authority at the assembly in Jerusalem. We see him in Acts chapter uh, 15 during that assembly and that council, if you will, where they were testing Paul's gospel message. And he was recognized as the head of the church, Galatians. Uh, Paul tells us that in Galatians. And uh, in Acts 21, he heard the report of missions of the Gentile world. And tradition teaches us that he was a very esteemed leader in, uh, the, in the church world at that time. In fact, he was also called uh, James uh, with camel knees because he was a man of prayer and his knees were wrinkled because he was kneeling in prayer so much. Uh, Eusebius, the early church historian, quotes uh, another writer who knew James that he would enter alone into the temple and was found kneeling and praying for forgiveness of the people so that his knees grew hard like camels because of his constant worship of God. So James, this James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, is the writer of uh, this book of James. The Jewish historian Josephus, who uh, during the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, uh, he wrote about James, and he wrote about James's martyrdom, and he says that there was a priest named Ananus who was young and experienced and convened the judges of the Sanhedrin, he accused James, the brother of Jesus, and others with breaking the law. James was sentenced to be killed by stoning, and yet the priests took James up to the high point on, on the uh, Temple Mount and cast him off. He didn't die immediately, but was finally clubbed, stoned, and clubbed to death. Uh, that's what Josephus tells us, the Jewish historian from that time. So the writer is... Uh, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the younger brother, of course, married and had children after the miraculous conception and the birth of Jesus Christ. She had other children, and James was the next child in place there. Uh, and then when was the book written? Well, we can go back and do a chronology, and there's great chronologies out there. Dr. Harold Boner has done a wonderful chronology, and uh, he has done the studies and the science and the dating, and Jesus Christ was crucified on April 3rd, 33, AD 33. And then, so therefore, the conversion of Saul was probably a year later in AD 34. Acts 1 through 9, in the history book of the church, covers approximately uh, AD 33 through AD 34 or 35. And so the writing of James probably as early as AD 34. And again, like I said, nothing in the epistle goes beyond Acts 1 through 9. Uh, no mention is made of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which took place in AD 49, which James took an active role in. And uh, again, uh, Josephus, the first century historian, said James was martyred in AD 62. And James was written so early, it was before the spreading of the gospel to the Gentile world. The church at this time was considered not distinctly Gentile or Jewish, but primarily Jewish. It was primarily uh, Jewish in flavor and character and purpose. And church order had not been established yet because the Apostle Paul had not written Timothy and Titus, uh, where it lays out some church order. James contains no reference to church leaders other than elders that are mentioned in chapter 5, verse 14. And that's a reflection of the Jewish elders that served in a synagogue. And so this was 
Remember, Acts was a transition book, transitioning from an Old Testament Jewish economy, basically, or way of doing things, to the New Testament, to the church age. And so the book uh, was written very early, as the chart shows you. By the way, a footnote on that chart, and uh, I would just, if you write on things, you might uh, move the Gospel of John, which is in the last column, uh, from where it's at, probably before 61. Uh, who am I to argue with Robert Gromacki, who did this, but I will argue with him. I believe the Gospel of John was written earlier, and that's based on John chapter 5, verse 2, the grammar there, and the history that's listed there, as well as chapter 21, verse 14. I believe that indicates that the apostles were still alive uh, when John wrote this, uh, the Gospel of John. So that's, you can blame me. If uh, you move John down to before 61, before the death of uh, the early of the apostles. So that's just one footnote on that chart. So who are the original recipients? Notice in chapter 1, verse 1, James, who's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. And uh, he's writing to the Jewish believers who have been dispersed. And this began to occur in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. When the persecution came upon the new church, uh, they were scattered abroad. They were scattered all over. So he's addressing the Jewish believers who were scattered around and not in Jerusalem. The 12 tribes scattered around the nations. This letter has a whole Jewish flavor to it. If you read through it, you'll start picking that up. He refers to the first fruits, uh, which is a reference back to Leviticus, the synagogue or meeting place in chapter 2 of James, and our ancestor Abraham in chapter 2. Gehenna, or hell, uh, in the Hebrew sense, in chapter 3, the Lord Almighty, Lord Sebaoth, uh, in chapter 5, uh, the earlier latter fall and spring rains, he refers to nature here, and so a Jewish person could identify with what he's saying, uh, the Jewish believers were scattered, and so it's filled with extensive Hebrew symbolism, and he wrote to these Jewish Christians scattered throughout uh, that area, in the east. James addressed the Jewish Christians scattered in Babylonia and Mesopotamia, <clears throat> whereas Peter wrote the Jewish Christians scattered in the west, like in Italy and uh, Turkey and those places. The epistle of James is a pastoral letter. He's writing, he's encouraging them to persevere in the midst of adversity. They've been scattered, they've been chased from their homeland, they've been persecuted and oppressed and he's writing before the Apostle Paul's mission to the Gentile church. Uh, and so does this letter belong in our Bibles? You may be aware, or you may not be aware, that James was one of the disputed book, books in the early part of church uh, history in the first number of centuries, three or four centuries. In fact, clear up until Martin Luther, he wasn't even listed in his translation. I think it was in the 1300s, uh, he would take Hebrews uh, as a disputed book, James, Jude, and Revelation, and he would put them in a supplement and list them in the table of contents, but he included them at the end of the book. And uh, like I said, we get our English order, it's included in the Latin Vulgate. And so finally, in 1539, with the publication of what is called the Great Bible, it uh, is reflective of what we have today, and James is included along with Hebrews, Revelation, and uh, and Jude. 
And so James is one of the general epistles. And what does that mean? Some people might hear some people refer to it as a Catholic epistle. And all that Catholic means, not Roman Catholic, but all that Catholic means is for the whole church. It means the universal church, the whole church. And since James is not directed to any one location or any one uh, church, like the Apostle Paul, his letter to the church at Ephesus, to Corinth, and so on, uh, this, this letter, as well as First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and Jude, were called encyclicals or encyclicals. They were designed to go out and be read at different places. Now remember that they didn't receive a book, uh, these uh, scattered Jewish believers, they didn't receive a book like we have. Someone came with a scroll, a manuscript, and they read it. So it was more like a sermon. Like I said, you could read through it in nine or ten minutes. So whoever distributed this and promulgated it, he would go and speak to each one of these groupings of believers wherever they were. And uh, sometimes perhaps the letter was copied, where they had to copy it by hand and then uh, distribute it that way. And so yes, this uh, letter does belong in our Bibles. The earliest known collection of uh, scriptures, the Muratorian fragments in the second century does not include Hebrews, James, and the epistles of Peter. But in the fourth and fifth centuries, James appears consistently included in what we call the canon or the complete Bible. Uh, you know, it appears that in history, the churches in Rome and Carthage and North Africa doubted the uh, authenticity of the book of James, and nevertheless, uh, the churches in Jerusalem and Alexandria and other places in the East included it in a collection of books uh, that they would collect together. Overall, I just need to encourage you that God is the one who determined the canon. It wasn't uh, some guy sitting in a dusty library in Alexandria that determined the canon, but God directed it that we have a Bible today that's authoritative, trustworthy, and is there for us. Uh, Luther was probably prejudiced, Martin Luther was probably prejudiced against the book of James because, uh, remember, he was the great reformer. He sought out to reform the Roman Catholic Church, that salvation is by Christ alone, by grace alone. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church was teaching that uh, justification, that uh, righteousness is imparted to us and we get to be better people and we do good works and so justification is by works. And he was probably prejudiced against it because Roman Catholicism used the book of James in a misunderstanding way to prove that, that you had to be, to be saved, you had to do good works. Uh, but later on, William Tyndale and John Calvin accepted it as scripture. And uh, probably the reason is, is that uh, it was written in Jerusalem and written to the Jewish believers who were dispersed into the eastern part of the then known world. And those in the West were not so readily available to accept the letter of the scripture. But God not only superintending the writing of scripture, but its acceptance and authority as well. So yes, James does belong in our Bibles, no matter what uh, liberal scholars say. You know, they date it late, and they say it should, it's not really scripture. Uh, but uh, those, all those theories have been debunked. Uh, what is the purpose of James? As I said, it's an ethical letter. It means it's, it's really grassroots. It's putting rubber on the road. It's living out your faith, and we will see that over the next several weeks. Uh, this letter is to exhort the early believers to Christian maturity and holiness of life. In the midst of difficulty, adversity, and persecution, they had to deal uh, with the idea of patience with perseverance in trouble. 
This deal, letter deals with the practice of the Christian faith more than the precepts. It's not really a doctrinal letter. When we think of doctrine, like the book of Romans, it is a practical application of the doctrine that we know. And James told his readers how to achieve spiritual maturity through confidence and compassionate service, careful speech, contrite submission, and concerned sharing. He deals with every area of the Christian life, it seems like, uh, what he is, what he does, what he says, what he feels, and what he has. And probably the key verse is found in chapter 1, verse 19. Look at that for us. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be, now listen to these three things, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And we will see that throughout that, uh, James is going to expand upon those things. So how is your weight training? How is your weight training? As we go through the book of James, we're going to see that he has much to teach us and much challenges and admonishments and exhortations on how to live out our Christian lives. As we get into this study, you may experience some soreness from exercising. You know, if you do weight training, lifting heavy weights, your muscles are going to be sore and stiff. And as you do weight training, W-A-I-T, and you're going to get sore and stiff from exercising your patience muscles, aren't you? Uh, yours may have atrophied a bit and may need some good exercise because that's good because if you feel stiff and sore, it's a sign that your muscle is working and it needs to do more work. So I would challenge you that this week, read through the book of James. It doesn't take long. Just be thankful I'm not asking you to read through Leviticus every day, but read through James. And uh, it's just packed full. Every time I read it, something else comes out. And I think, wow, they're just so full. So full of what's, what's there, the exercise of your spiritual life. So read James, think about it, ask yourself questions, jot them down if you're in the habit of writing down questions. And hopefully we'll be able to answer them and pray about it and think it through. So read through the book of James this week. Serving faith. Now next week, we're going to, before we get into the exposition through the, through the whole book, we're going to look at 10 facts about salvation in James. 10 facts about salvation in James. That is the sticking point and the debate that is ongoing, not, be, not even just between Roman Catholicism and evangelicalism, but within evangelicalism. So we're going to look at 10 facts about what it means to be saved in James. Next week, we'll do that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for this morning. Thank